0: Would you agree, Mr. Durst, that the note takes on a potentially sinister meaning when it occurs at the time that your wife turns up missing?
1: It is sinister because you are making it sinister.
0: Tell me everything you know about Daniel Cunningham.
1: That will take quite a while.
0: Oh, I'll wait. You dismembered a person, Mr. Durst. Are you telling me that you don't know what dried blood looks like coming from a dead person?
1: Correct.
0: You include those details, Mr. Durst, because you found in your life of lying that when you include extra details like that, people tend to believe you more, right?
1: I do not have a life of lying.
2: Welcome back to Season 2 of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. I'm joined by my co-host, Brittany Bookbinder.
3: On Wednesday, August 25th, Robert Durst took the stand for his 10th day of testimony. The defendant charged with murdering his close friend, Susan Berman, faced prosecutor John Lewin in yet another dynamic day of cross-examination.
2: In today's episode, we will explore John Lewin's strategy to ensnare the defendant in a trap of his own making by interrogating Durst about the details of his direct testimony. Over the course of the day, Lewin revisited the dig note, examined Durst's friendship with a weed farmer, and ultimately confronted Durst with several incongruities in his narrative regarding the discovery of Susan Berman's body.
3: That's coming up after the break.
1: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
2: John Lewin began the day by confronting Durst with an alternate interpretation of one scribbled word in the dig note, an interpretation that could prove damaging to Durst's case. All right.
0: Let's talk for a moment, Mr. Durst, about dig list, what we call the dig list, what you call the digilist. Can you put that up, Mr. Henderson, please? You know what I'm referring to? I do. There's an entry at the end of it. The last thing it says, check, car, and then there's a, there's a hyphen. Is that right? All right and the next word you're saying is truck is that correct correct and then there's a slash is that right yeah and what is the next word rent you know who lloyd cunningham is correct mr durst have you seen don't put anything up mr anderson have you seen the january 19 2018 report by lloyd cunningham have you had a chance to look at that report
1: I looked at the reports of the handwriting people. I don't remember their names.
0: Okay, well, I'm going to give you this report. I'm not going to have you look at it now, but I'm going to ask you whether you've had a chance to look at it later, but I am going to ask you the following. You don't need to look at it now, but here's my question to you. Isn't it true, Mr. Durst, that that says trunk and not truck?
1: To me, it says truck.
0: Would you agree, Mr. Durst, that if the word was trunk, that would be a very damaging notation to have there. Do you agree that
1: Improper trunk captain.
0: is far worse than truck?
2: Improper
1: I don't agree. I don't know how one is worse than the other.
0: Would you agree, Mr. Durst, that if it says check car trunk, that that can't be for putting the sailboat in it, correct?
1: You have to put the sailboat in a trunk.
0: Let's assume that what we have here is its check, car, trunk, and then slash rent. If that is true, explain to me what that would mean.
1: I can't can't even explain it to myself. I don't remember writing the note. When I wrote it, I was probably doing something else at the same time.
0: Would you agree, Mr. Durst, that... A town dump is a place you could get rid of a body.
1: I have no idea.
0: Would you agree that a bridge is a place where you could throw a body over?
1: I guess it would depend on whether it's a big bridge or a little bridge.
0: Would you agree that dig could imply that you are going to dig and bury a body?
1: Dig would imply that I'm going to dig and bury a body. No dig what is for digital
0: that's not what i asked you let's assume the word dig is on the list if that is the word and it's not dig would you agree that dig could describe what somebody would do to get rid of a body
1: I don't know what somebody would do to get rid of a body
0: would you agree that boat could describe taking a body out on a boat and dumping it in the middle of a water
1: i would agree that you could take all these things and come to a zillion different guesses as to what they might have meant
0: would you agree mr durst that the note takes on a potentially sinister meaning when it occurs at the time that your wife turns up missing.
1: It is because you are making it stir.
3: Lewin then pivoted from the dig note to address Durst's location in the days before Susan's murder. Durst has previously testified that during that time frame he purchased marijuana from an old friend. Lewin took this opportunity to interrogate Durst on the details of the alleged exchange.
0: You bought a pound of marijuana from your old friend from college days, correct? Correct. You you know, I noticed, Mr. Durst, when you were testifying, you didn't give a name. Why didn't you give the guy's name? Why did you just call him an old friend from college?
1: Well, I don't don't wanna get him in trouble.
0: You're concerned that in 2021, He's going to get in trouble for a pound of weed that he sold 21 years ago. Is that your testimony?
1: My testimony is I did not use his name because I did not want him to get in trouble.
0: Well, here, you don't have a choice. What's his name?
1: Danny Cunningham.
0: Danny Cunningham. I assume his name is Daniel Cunningham?
1: I knew him as Danny Cunningham.
0: And you knew him from college, that means you went to school with him at Lehigh?
1: Each of these things that you bring up has to do with me abbreviating something or speaking loosely. I did not know him from my college days. I knew him from my graduate school days when we were both at UCLA in PhD program for economics.
0: Tell me about Daniel Cunningham. What do you know about him?
1: Do I know about him?
0: Yes. Tell me everything you know about Daniel Cunningham.
1: That will take quite a while.
0: Oh, I'll wait.
1: Okay. So Daniel Cunningham dropped out of the Ph.D. program at about the same time that I did, and he moved to Garbersville, and he bought land contiguous with the Redwood Forest.
0: Let me stop you. How old is Daniel Cunningham?
1: About my age, I guess.
0: And how tall is he?
1: Taller than me.
0: Give me approximate height and weight.
1: Let's say 5'9", 160 pounds.
0: Is uh, Is he a male white? Is he a white guy?
1: He's a white guy.
0: And your testimony is that he moved to Garberville when? Around
1: 1968 or 1969.
0: And when he moved up there, was he growing marijuana? What was the deal?
1: He grew marijuana.
0: So your testimony is that he would grow marijuana and you would buy it from him? Correct. You didn't have a connection closer to Trinidad or Eureka where you would buy marijuana? No. How often did you buy marijuana from him when you lived there?
1: Probably every four to six months.
0: So a pound of marijuana would last you four to six months? Correct and it's your testimony that you would pay about five grand for the pound?
1: Correct.
0: And when's the last time you had contact with Daniel Cunningham?
1: Probably around 2007.
0: And how many times do you think over the years you bought weed from Daniel Cunningham? 20. And you would always pay cash? Yeah. Would you always drive to Garberville to get the weed? Yeah. So you've driven there approximately 20 times, is that correct?
1: Well, I've been to Garberville more times than I bought marijuana there.
0: I want you to tell me exactly how you would get to Danny's house. Give me the roads you would take. Where exactly does he live? Well, let's start with, what's his address?
1: He's off the grid.
0: He's off the grid, so... If he's off the grid, how would you find him to buy marijuana?
1: I knew where he lived.
0: Describe exactly where he lived and how you would get there.
1: You would take the road from 101 and you would get off where you should get off and go north about half a mile, and that would be Dan, Danny so, Cunningham's farm.
0: So, Mr. Durst, would you agree that telling me you would get off at, quote, the road where you're supposed to get off is not a description that anyone could ever find? Would you agree? Sure. What's the road?
1: I don't know the name of the road.
0: So you had a farm. Tell me about this
1: farm. Well, in addition to growing marijuana, he sold organic eggs and organic tomatoes.
0: So you've admitted to lying and committing perjury, correct?
1: Correct.
0: Would you agree, Mr. Durst, that you have found when you personally lie and commit perjury that you like to include a lot of details? Would you agree that's a fair assessment?
1: No, in terms of including lots of details, I don't include more details than I think are necessary to answer a question.
0: So, for instance, when you told Detective Strzok that you spoke to Kathy Durst on the night of January 31st, when she was back at Riverside Drive, you also added the detail that that occurred between 10.30 and 11, correct?
1: I don't remember.
0: Would you agree, Mr. Durst, that you also added the detail that she was watching the news? Yeah. That was a lie. Right?
1: That was a lie.
0: And that was an extra detail, two details that you added to try to sell your story, correct?
1: Correct.
0: You include those details, Mr. Durst, because you found in your life of lying that when you include extra details like
2: that, people tend to believe you more, right?
1: I do not have a life of lying.
2: Later in the day, the topic of weed farmer Danny Cunningham made a cinematic reappearance.
1: Mr. Durst,
0: this morning, I showed you a handwriting report. Do you recall that?
1: Yes.
0: And you agree you had a chance. You looked at that handwriting report, correct?
1: I had a chance, yes.
0: And I put the, was Mr. Henderson briefly put it up on the screen do you recall that no after you ended up looking at the handwriting report i was examining you regarding your friend who you bought the marijuana from and what name did you say what was his name
1: danny cunningham
0: mr durst are you aware of what the name of the handwriting expert on the report that I gave you was? No. Lloyd Cunningham.
1: Maybe a little related.
0: Is it possible, Mr. Durst, or is in fact what happened that, similar to the movie Usual Suspects, you looked at this report, you saw the name Cunningham, and that's the name you decided to give when you were naming your marijuana dealer? No, Isn't that, that what happened?
1: That is not possible.
0: So it's a coincidence that you came up with that name, even though we showed you before that it says Lloyd Cunningham on the
1: report? I assume that it is a coincidence, After for all I know, they're related.
3: In the afternoon, Lewin continued to question Durst about his memories, mining for inconsistencies in seemingly innocuous minutiae. But as the prosecutor dug into Durst's discovery of Susan's body, every dissonant detail proved potentially damning.
0: So what do you do when you go in the house?
1: I holler at Susie a few times, and then I walk straight ahead to where the bedrooms are. And out of the corner of my left eye, I see Susie lying on the floor of the bedroom, on her back, with her feet pointing towards the door
0: and can you describe when you saw her what did you think
1: i thought she fainted
0: and at that point in time what did you do
1: i ran over to where she was i squatted across her body i put my hand down at her mouth and nose and then i lifted her up by her upper arms and then her head went back, and I saw that there was liquid around, in a puddle around her head.
0: At this point in time, you realize the liquid's blood, right? Yeah. I mean, it's red. You can't miss it, right?
1: It wasn't red. It was black.
0: It's black because it had coagulated, correct?
1: Well, black for whatever reason. It was black.
0: Mr. Durst, you're aware of what happens to blood when it's been around for a while, correct?
1: No, not correct.
0: So Mr. Durst, assume somebody was shot and that shooting happened immediately. Would you agree they're gonna have red blood? Yes. So the blood you saw was much darker because it was old blood, wasn't it?
1: I don't know if it was old blood or new blood.
0: Are you saying in your life you have no experience with what dried blood looks like? Correct. You dismembered a person, Mr. Durst. Are you telling me that you don't know what dried blood looks like coming from a dead person?
1: Correct.
0: So how was it, Mr. Durst, that you dismembered Morris Black? What did you do with Morris's blood? When you dismembered him, did you drain the blood in the tub or the toilet?
1: I did not drain his blood.
0: Well, Mr. Durst, you agree that there was a lot of blood from Morris Black that ended up leaving his body after you shot him, correct? Correct. And would you further agree that when you first saw the blood from Morris Black, it was red blood, correct? Correct. And would you agree that when you came back, hours later, and when you dismembered him the next day, that that blood was now the same dark color as the blood you saw from Susan Berman, correct?
1: I don't know that Morris Black's blood was the same color as Susan Berman's blood.
0: Well, you agree Susan Berman's blood was not red, it was dark, like black, you said, correct? Correct. Have you ever seen fresh blood that comes out of a person's body that is black?
1: The problem is with timing.
0: Uh, Please explain.
1: You say blood turns dark later. Are we talking about an hour, a day?
0: Mr. Durst, based on your experience dismembering Morris Black, and just your opinion as a 78-year-old man, How long did it appear to you that approximately Susan Berman had been dead? Did it look like she just died or did it look like she'd been dead for a number of hours?
1: I have no idea.
0: You have no idea?
1: Zero idea.
0: So Mr. First, after you found Susan's body, what is the next thing that you did?
1: I ran into the kitchen and I grabbed her phone.
0: And can you describe the phone please?
1: It was a regular old
0: landline phone. A regular landline phone does not have a charger, correct?
1: No, it's not correct. It did have a charger.
0: Is this what you're referring to as the phone you used? Yes. Yeah. And you indicated, Mr. Durst, that this phone, correct, your testimony was it didn't work, so you put it into the charger and it still didn't work. Is that correct?
1: The phone was off the hook.
0: So the phone was off the hook. So you're calling the phone base now, the charger.
1: Correct.
0: Um, Was that the only phone that you saw, Mr. Durst? Yes. Can you go to the photo? Is that the position you found Susan Berman in? Yes. What's to the right of her body?
1: I don't know.
0: You don't know what that item is, the white thing?
1: In
2: the photo displayed by the courtroom projector, the white thing by Susan's body is clearly a landline phone.
1: Correct.
2: You
0: don't recognize that as a telephone?
1: Correct.
0: What do you think it is?
1: I never thought about it. I've never seen this picture before.
0: Well, you're looking at the picture now, Mr. Durst. What does that appear to be?
1: It appears to be the same kind of phone. That was on the table by the kitchen.
0: And when you say it appears to be the same kind of phone, you now recognize that to be a telephone, is that correct?
1: A telephone.
0: And can you tell me, Mr. Durst, since it's right next to Susan's body, why do you use that phone?
1: I don't remember ever seeing that phone.
0: Would you agree, Mr. Durst, that it's pretty hard to miss if you're looking at Susan Berman's body. No. So your position is you found her body, and then instead of using the phone that is a few inches away from her, that is sticking out, that instead, you went into another room to find a different phone to use. Is that your testimony?
1: Correct.
0: At that point in time, you can't make any phone work. Is that correct? Correct. What did you do to try to make the phone work?
1: put it back onto what I'm calling the charger.
0: Mr. Durst, you're aware that the phones in her house were working, correct?
1: It was working the night before, Yeah.
0: Mr. Durst, you heard the answering machine messages that occur after the 23rd, correct? We played them in this trial.
1: Uh, yes, yeah, that's a call on Sunday. When I found Susan Berman's body, it was Saturday morning at 10, not Sunday.
0: So it's your testimony that the phone worked the night before you talked to her. The phone worked the next day, but for some reason it wasn't working only while you were there on the 23rd. Is that your testimony?
1: my testimony is... And when I picked up the phone, there was no dialed tone. It's that time of the
3: year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax,
1: and think about
3: work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync... Things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com.
2: We're now joined by reporter Charlie Bagley, who's covering the case for The New York Times and for CrimeStory.com. Charlie, thanks for coming back. Thank you. So Charlie, there's a few things for us to talk about. We reported on a lot of this earlier in our program, but let's start by talking about this guy, Danny Cunningham, who it appears was, at least according to Bob, was Bob's graduate school buddy and drug dealer of choice in Northern California. What did you make of the whole Danny Cunningham part of the testimony?
4: First of all, we know that Bob has been smoking pot every day since uh, UCLA, and that every time he's been arrested, he always had a fairly large quantity of marijuana with him. So the idea that he was buying uh, pot in bulk is not so much a surprise, but it is something of a surprise that he had a, a grad school friend who was a grower up in Northern California. It seemed awfully convenient. And probably one of the more telling moments was when Lewin asked why Bob hadn't called him or told anyone about this prior to the testimony, because this could have been a person that buttressed uh, his tale, his his description of what he was doing. This would have been a witness. Uh, It would have been one of the few witnesses to what Bob said, who wasn't already dead.
2: In one of the earlier podcasts, Charlie, you mentioned the movie The Fugitive and Bob looking for a one-armed man. John Lewin today brought up Kaiser Soze and the movie The Usual Suspects. Brittany, what was your reaction to that?
3: I mean, yeah, it sounds like that is exactly what happened. That he sees Lloyd Cunningham. That's an easy enough name. Sure, there's probably a a Danny Cunningham growing pot somewhere in Northern California. That'll check out. I feel like Lewin was pretty spot on with that.
2: Yeah, I agree with all of that, except that Bob thought enough ahead to say, yeah, that'll check out. I, I don't think Bob cares whether <laughs> stuff checks out or not. Um, I think you're right. He saw that handwriting expert's name and he was like, oh yeah, that I'll go with that. So Charlie, it, again, in one of the earlier podcasts, when you talked about the kind of reference to the fugitive and the one-armed man A lot of this testimony about rigor mortis and Susan's cold body seemed to harken back to Bob's attempt to create a scenario where the killer was still in the house when Bob arrived. Tell us about how the prosecution's use of the medical examiner's testimony undermined Bob's narrative and sort of tied him in knots today.
4: Step by step, Lewin got him to talk about what he was doing and what time he was doing it. What time did he arrive at Susan's house? And then as soon as he had him nailed down on every detail, then he goes back and said, all right, well, according to the medical examiner's report, she would have died sometime late on the 22nd or early in the morning on the 23rd. And Bob's timeline didn't quite jive with that. Now, one of the things that makes it really difficult is that Bob said that Susan's body, or at least her breath, was cold and, uh, and she was dead. Uh, but also today he said that the blood was dark. It wasn't red. It, it was that sort of dark, blackish color that that blood takes on after it coagulates. And um, that would mean, right, in in terms of how uh, a body reacts in death, that it would have put her death farther and farther back so that either Bob didn't speak to Susan at 11pm the night before or he didn't find her body at 10 a.m. the next day. One of those time points has to move for Bob's story to make sense.
3: Yeah, and something I was wondering about was he talks about stopping in Bakersfield. Assuming that that part is not true, what do you think that's about? What do you think his reason for including that in the story would be?
2: My instinct, and this is sort of guessing, but my instinct is that Susan died around the time that Bob said he talked to her on the phone around 11 o'clock at night on the 22nd. I think Bob wanted to put himself as far away from Los Angeles around the time of her death as possible. And yet he tried to have it both ways. So he testified that the killer was still in the house and that it possibly happened while he was there. But he knows that the medical examiner's evidence doesn't point to that. So he's trying to muddy the story. So that's what I think Bakersfield is about. I think that Bob went down there on the night of the 22nd. I think he shot Susan Berman. I think he stayed in a hotel that night. He probably paid cash and he started to drive up early the next morning, got on a plane back to uh, the East Coast. But again, that's my speculation.
3: Absolutely. And I think talking about it like Bob wanting to have it both ways is such a good way to say it because there are things that we have talked about, like was the killer in the house? How does that work? And he's very careful not to say specifically, oh, yeah, I think she was talking on the phone to somebody. Oh, yeah, I definitely think there was somebody in the house. He's trying to leave enough uncertainty to kind of muddy the waters.
4: Just one footnote from uh, the Bakersfield version of events. Bob said that he had to pull over because he had a migraine. I sort of was taken aback at that point, and I inquired of people in Bob's camp whether or not Bob had had a history of migraines, and I was told, no, he did not. It was a reason for pulling off, I suppose.
2: There were a lot of other inconsistencies or outright lies that Bob got caught in. There was the whole thing about the phone charger and landline phones being disconnected. There was Bob's assertion that there was a charge on his Amex card from the Chateau Marmont, and then backing off that by saying Susan worked her magic to get it taken off his card. Charlie, by the end of today, what was your sense of where Robert Durst is as a witness and as a defendant?
4: I think he's got a real uphill battle in establishing any credibility. There has been a real methodical dismantling of every single sentence that he uttered concerning the events between December 19th And December 23rd, when he was in California and Susan was murdered. It's just a really tough spot. And uh, as he said during testimony, he he admitted, he conceded that he's lied and and committed perjury in the course of the trial. Uh, He did seem to describe a new category of minor, minor perjury, which, you know, what's a few perjurious words between friends. And then some of the whoppers.
3: Carrie, I have a question for you. We heard a lot of back and forth about the phones in Susan Berman's house. And we saw the prosecution displayed a photograph where we actually saw that there were two phones in the house. What did you make of that back and forth?
2: I think what happened, and again, this is just speculation based on the evidence that's in front of us. Bob killed Susan. He disconnected the phone phone. From the wall, and he took it off what he called the charger, which is just essentially the base station of the phone. And what that allowed to happen was it allowed phone calls that came in to go to the other phone, which was in the kitchen and connected to the answering machine. So it allowed people to continue to leave messages. And so when Bob said the phone was dead, what he was remembering was that he unplugged the phone and it would naturally be dead. And he probably looked at evidence photos and saw that there was a phone in the kitchen and remembered that as being the phone that he took off the hook. So he just mashed all those thoughts up and made up a story about picking up the phone and it being dead. One other area before we get to the very end of the day um, his whole testimony about Diane Boucher and taking a sick friend to uh to for for treatment for what he later learned was her ovarian cancer and um the the idea that she would come out of treatment that he was there to help her and yet she made him dinner and she did the dishes i mean i don't know i don't know why but that really maybe, maybe, as someone who um is a little more attuned to you know what happens when people get sick like that when they have cancer, but that really just stunned me in its tone deafness
4: but but Carrie, doesn't that sound more like Bob? Here he is, he's supposed to be the caretaker, and she's making. the the dinner or or breakfast and doing the dishes. Uh, Bob is sitting at the table waiting to be served. That sounds like Bob to me.
2: So let's go to the end of the day. After the jury left, Judge Wyndham announced to the lawyers that he was going to put some limit on the prosecution's ability to continue to question Robert Durst. Charlie, talk to us about what happened there.
4: The judge, I think, has wanted to have this case wrapped up by Labor Day, and it's obvious we're going into September. Uh, He said, look, the, the defense had Bob on the stand for four or five days, about 24 hours in total for testimony, and that by the end of tomorrow, John will have had 38 hours. Now, this is a highly unusual case. So he's got a lot of ground to cover what the judge is saying. You, you've you done a job, a, a devastating job of showing that this is not a witness that you can believe and that he doesn't have to turn over every single sentence that Bob utters to get to the truth. Lewin, on the other hand, says, Look, I got to do my job. And that is exposing every single lie, every single misstatement. And it takes time, particularly when Bob is continually inventing new versions of what happened.
2: Brittany, what did you make of that whole exchange at the end where Lewin was asking for, initially he asked to be able to wrap it up on Tuesday, and then at the end he made a desperation, kind of Hail Mary request to wrap it up on Monday, and Wyndham said, well, let's see how you do tomorrow. How did you regard all that?
3: Ultimately, the jury is not here to decide if Bob Durst is a liar. They're here to decide if Bob Durst killed Susan Berman. I understand from John Lewin's perspective the desire that I'm sure has been building up since 2015 to confront him with all of these questions, but it is exhausting. And some of it feels like, sure, there are lies, there are inconsistencies, there are provable moments of perjury. And yet, is that necessary? I started wondering, to what extent is Lewin concerned about the record, depending on what happens, depending on if they appeal? How concerned is he that the record shows that he asked about every possible point to see what his reaction would be, whether he would own up to things, whether he would come up with an alternative version or, you know, surprise us as he's done so many times.
2: Yeah. It'll be interesting to see tomorrow how Lewin approaches time management, because in the last week or so, when Bob has made a point of saying, yes, let's go through the entire BD story and look for every reference to Susan Berman as Durst claims that there should be no references because the judge ordered no references to Susan Berman to be made. I think it'll be interesting to see if John Lewin takes those challenges of sorts, those time management challenges that Durst will inevitably throw his way to slow things down and just move past them and move on to the next thing feels like he's going to have to do that.
4: I also think that what might be in the judge's mind is what becomes of the jury. Uh, Just this week or, or at the end of last week, we lost another juror. I mean, they were replaced by an alternate, but we used to have 11 alternates and now we're down to five. And who knows what happens after Labor Day. And, you know, you, you've got that COVID thing hanging out there.
2: Well, tomorrow is Thursday, the last day of the week in court. We'll see whether John Lewin, we'll see whether Judge Wyndham makes it John Lewin's last day on cross-examination or whether Lewin gets one more day to wrap things up. All of that is coming up on the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst.
3: Please remember that you can receive alerts and news breaks on developments in Robert Durst's murder trial, as well as new episodes of season two of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst, by subscribing now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Again, if you want to refresh your memory on where the prosecution and defense are heading with their arguments in the trial, go back and re-listen to episodes from season one. And head over to crimestory.com for in-depth coverage of the Durst story. Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst, is created and produced by Carrie Antholis. This episode was written by Molly Miller. It was edited by Molly Miller and Alexis Bartolo, with help from Brittany Bookbinder. It was co-produced by Molly Miller, Alexis Notabartolo, and Brittany Bookbinder. Music was provided by Strike Audio. Thanks for joining us, and we hope you'll come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst.